собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. As long as we've known death, we've dreamed of life without end. The struggle against death has a long history in Russia, where communities of visionaries and utopians have pressed at the very limits of the human. This includes 19th century figures like the Russian Orthodox thinker Nikolai Fyodorov and his ideas of cosmism, Bolsheviks like Alexander Bogdanov, and today's owners of small cryogenics outfits to scientists working in biogerontology, Fedorov's contemporary followers, and neurotech enthusiasts. Immortalist and transhumanist thought is alive and well in Russia. To make sense of these movements, I turn to Anya Bernstein for their place in Russia's past and present and their global implications. Anya Bernstein is the John L. Loeb Associate Professor of Social Sciences and Anthropology at Harvard University. She's the author of two books, Religious Bodies Politic, Rituals of Sovereignty in Buryat Buddhism, published by University of Chicago Press, and most recently, The Future of Immortality, Remaking Life and Death in Contemporary Russia, published by Princeton University Press. Here's Anya Bernstein. So I thought we'd start by just having you um, introduce yourself. I'm Anya Bernstein. I'm a sociocultural anthropologist at Harvard University. And what do you do? I study Russia. My uh, latest book has to do with immortality in Russia. My first book had to do with the Buddhist revival in the Republic of Buryatia in Siberia. And now I am continuing to work on a different kind of techno-futurism in Russia. This time I'm back in Siberia, but in the Yakutia or Saha Republic in the Arctic. And so how did you, you know, how did you get interested in, in immortalism and transhumanism and all these things that are connected to it? Because it's, you know, when I, and I first learned that uh, about your book coming out several months ago, it's kind of a weird and esoteric topic. So what drew you into this? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I wanted to highlight slight differences between these terms. So immortalism and transhumanism are related ideas, but also they're social movements. So they're interesting to study for an anthropologist. Immortalists aspire to achieve immortality through using advances in science and technologies, and transhumanists want to expand and transcend current human capacities in general, and radical life extension is usually a part of it. But sometimes both of these things get 
uh, con conflated with posthumanism, which is a philosophical trend in academia, which aspires to decenter the human, right? So it's a philosophical critique of humanism, which is almost the opposite to what transhumanists and immortalists are doing, because they're humanists, first of all. But I got interested in immortalism in Russia, uh, interestingly, while working on my previous book on Buddhism. Um, what I was doing in that book was I was looking at what I called Buddhist body politics, in particular related to practices of death and immortality. In that book, I looked at things like reincarnation, incorruptible bodies of Buddhist lamas that were exhumed but did not decompose. I looked at these very specific rituals of symbolic body dismemberment. But I was interested in how these ways of overcoming death became particular sites of sovereignty for the indigenous communities in question. So I was always interested in this nexus between body and sovereignty and overcoming death. So, but Buddhism in Siberia might sound very different from techno-futurism in Moscow, and Moscow was where I did my research for the book. But there were a couple of curious facts that that I discovered while doing this research uh, with Buddhism. So one thing that I came across while doing my fieldwork for the Buddhist project was this body of a Buddhist Lama called uh, Intigalov, uh, who is well known in Russia, who died, uh, but his body does not decompose. They exhumed him in 2002, they installed him in a shrine, and he became a kind of a center of uh, local Buddhism. Like pilgrims would come to pray to him from all over Russia and even abroad. And there are, of course, such bodies in Russian Orthodox Christianity and in other Buddhist traditions around the world. But the local Buddhists were so proud of their Lama that they compared him to Lenin. In fact, they called him our Buryat Lenin. Buryatia was where I worked. And of course, they said as a joke, as kind of like tongue in cheek. And, but what they, and, and what's more, they claimed that their Lama was better than Lenin because Lenin was preserved through science, but the Lama preserved himself in order to kind of re-emerge later. But it intrigued me and I started, I decided I needed to read more about the preservation of the body of Lenin. And of course, while I was reading this literature, I came across Nina Tumarkin's book, uh, which claimed that people around um, who constituted the Immortalization Commission, right, the commission in charge with preservation of Lenin's body, especially Leonid Krasin, she argued that they might have been, if not direct, but they might have been influenced by the ideas of Nikolai Fyodorov. And I'm sure we'll talk about Fyodorov. Um, uh, later on, who suggested using science and technology to resurrect the dead, right? And then he was kind of retroactively became the founder of a philosophical movement called Russian Cosmism. So that was one thing that intrigued me. So I started reading a lot on Fyodorov and immortality ideas in Russia in the 19th and 20th century. And the second discovery happened when I was teaching at the University of Michigan because I was asked to teach a course on anthropology of death. And I also edited immortality, so my course was titled Anthropology of Death and Immortality. Um, it's kind of a staple subject in our discipline, from early anthropological research on burial rituals to contemporary studies like the one I did in Buryatia. And when I was researching issues related to death and immortality, I came across an article about American cryonics. The and cryonics is the practice of freezing people in liquid nitrogen for future reanimation with the idea that science might find a way to bring them back to life. And death in this worldview is understood as being only temporary until science finds a way to bring us back to life, right? And there was a particular emphasis on body, sovereignty, and time that intrigued me. But 
of course, first of all, the whole practice struck me as pretty extreme, but also fascinating. And the article made a very particular argument. Um, it argues that cryonics is a distinctly American practice because it is like buying insurance against death. And it speaks the language of investment, insurance, capitalism, and a very particular type of American libertarianism. And this made a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, uh, I discovered that besides the US, only one country in the world also had an active cryonics company with storage facilities. And of course, it was Russia. That was Crew Rus that was founded in 2006. Right. And I want to say that one of the things you note, you know, in contrast to the kind of political undercurrents of the American cryonics, that in Russia, this kind of spans the people who are into this stuff kind of span the political spectrum. So you know, uh, how does how do you understand that difference? Well, that's exactly what intrigued me because the articles that I've read about American cryonics argue that people who are into cryonics, that it's a particularly indigenous American practice that has to do with these values that I just mentioned, and the people who are into cryonics, they're all white males, computer geeks, kind of like Silicon Valley types, just not as rich. Uh, and I was curious, you know, if cryonics is a cap libertarian capitalist practice, how do we explain first early communist plans to, say, freeze Lenin because they wanted to freeze him? And finally, you know, I was curious, would people from the Russian cryonics company be similar to their American counterparts? And finally, I was thinking, what about Fedorov's ideas? Because his was, the, uh, his was a project not of personal immortality and preserving a couple of frozen bodies, but a kind of a collectivist resurrection for all. It was a sort of a redemption project, which was very different from, you know, from what uh, American cryonics uh, was claimed to be about. So I went to Russia to... Uh, to discover what it, what it is all about. So let, let's talk about uh, Nikolai Fyodorov because he's such a, a fascinating figure. Uh, early, you know, beginning in the mid nineteenth century, he's kind of considered, you know, a f the the father of of this philosophy of cosmism, and so he's connected to not only this issue of immortality but also space travel and things. So, t who was he, and and what are some of his ideas? Yeah, um, so Nikolai Fedorov was a 19th century Russian Orthodox philosopher. He was a kind of a legendary ascetic who intrigued his contemporaries like Lev Tolstoy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, philosopher Vladimir Solovyov. Uh, he was a librarian who worked in the main state library, and he was again legendary for because uh, uh, he slept on a trunk, he didn't own anything, he gave his very small salary away, and he never really published anything during his life. Uh, what happened is that his disciples collected his writings and published it in 1906, and he further died in 1903. He was born in 1829 and died in 1903. So they collected his writings under this uh, title, The Philosophy of the Common Cause, sometimes translated The Philosophy of the Common Task. And they put a sticker in it called Not for Sale, and they started sending it to famous and influential people who they thought might be interested. So, but Fedorov's main idea is that he proposed that through science, we would one day learn to resurrect the dead. And he argued that there could be no more noble undertaking than, than furthering this task, because it was the only thing he said capable of uniting humanities and in wars and achieving peace. And he called that cause uh, the common cause, right, or the common task, Obshe Dela. 
And what's interesting that despite his futurism, central to his philosophy is the kind of old-fashioned notion of kinship and filial duty, because he viewed resurrection as a restoration of kinship that was interrupted by death, which he considered unnatural and not part of the original biblical condition, right? Because there was no death and there should be no death. And resurrection of ancestors for him is an ultimate act of filial duty, as well as an act of love and compassion for the ancestors by their descendants. And how it works is that each generation will be responsible for resurrecting their parents, which will resurrect their parents in turn, which will gradually extend to resurrecting the first humans. Hmm. And and I, I understand he was he was also religious. So how did the re- Orthodox religion play into this? Right, well, because he had this Christian idea of resurrection, but he, of course, modernized and transformed it. He thought that we should um, not passively wait for resurrection to happen, uh, but we should actively work towards it alongside God. But there should be a certain human agency in bringing bringing ahead the task of resurrection, right? He believes that we, as children, we owe this kind of vital debt to our parents. And further writing is full of interest in neologisms. He calls, for example, this resurrectory debt, right? And that instead of producing more children who will replace us, we should produce fathers, right? That's his terminology. And therefore, we should give birth to not to children, but to fathers, right? And all of these generations should coexist at the same time. So he modernized Christianity in a way that he introduced human factor, the idea of humans as active agents in this project. He also did not believe in the separation of heaven and hell. He believed in what is called in uh, in Orthodox theology, apocatastasis, the idea of universal resurrection. So everybody will be resurrected and there would be no definition, no division into sinners and righteous, right? It, it, so how do you explain, you know, the continued residence of not only Fyodorov's ideas throughout the, into the 19th, in 19th and then in, well into the 20th century, uh, and also the, you know, you have other figures like uh, Bogdanov in the Soviet period, and you have the embalming of Lenin. So how do you explain the continued resonance of these ideas of immortalism? Right. Well, I think that immortalism, as in striving for physical immortality, um, is not uniquely Russian phenomenon, but it just so happens, and that's what intrigued me, that it had a much longer history in Russia, right? Which starts with Fedorov, goes through the Soviet techno-utopianism with figures like Bogdanov, and... And it has to do with ideas that both humans and nature are endlessly malleable and open-ended, and they're subject to endless transformation by humans. I think it has to do with um, the spread of, uh, with, with the early spread of secularism in Russia, right, which enabled the belief in the powers of science to resolve the ultimate questions, including death, right. I also think that it comes from a certain kind of materialism that is already in uh, Russian Orthodox Christianity. So Fedorov would, of course, be viewed as a heretic from the point of view, and he was, and he is, from the point of view of the Russian Orthodox Church official doctrine. But there is a certain kind of materialism and the within Russian Orthodox Christianity, the idea that matter can be transformed and that matter can be holy, right? The idea uh, um, that matter can be uh, just as holy as spirit. And that's also one of the, uh, one of Fedorov's idea. How does, how does uh, like the ideas of Fyodorov and, and, and what you described, how does that intersect with the a kind of persistence of a utopian thinking and futurist thinking in Russia? 
throughout the 20th, into the, you know, late 19th and into the 20th century? Well, I think that Fedorov's ideas uh, were um, secular, secularized, and they were probably more influenced, they were they they sort of exist in the in the twenty in the 20th century. They got generalized. They are sometimes without reference to him because Fedor had some direct followers who really tried to spread his idea. He had some movements that secularized his ideas that were, but were very close to him, like the Biocosmists, which was a group of uh, political literary anarchists who secularized Fedorov's ideas but didn't want to acknowledge him. Right? They demanded the three human rights three basic human rights to be um, immortality, interplanetary travel, and resurrection. So they kind of pushed resurrection to uh, to the last places, but, but they still kept it. Uh, and Fedorov's ideas um, s- survived, I think, in, in the Soviet ideas of the transformation of nature, of um, the idea that humans are essentially malleable, and a kind of plastic project. Um, Fedorov could be seen throughout the history of the Russian avant-garde. If you start looking at the Russian avant-garde with Fedorov's ideas in mind, you could get a very different interpretation. And it has to do with both ideas of immortality, but also of space travel. Now Fedorov is being retroactively inscribed, and you mentioned space before because I didn't get to mention that, but he of course was one of the first people in Russia who talk about space exploration because once you resurrect all these different generations, uh, the idea that, they, you know, not just this pragmatic idea that we might not have space for all of them, but the idea was that we have to get off Earth, right? And that's why sometimes... Uh, Tsiolkovsky's claim to be a disciple of Fedorov, which is arguably, which is arguable. We don't know if they talked about their ideas, their philosophy is very different, but what his contemporary followers are doing right now is they're trying to create some kind of genealogy of Russian space program, where if Tsiolkovsky is the forefather of the space program, Fedorov is perhaps the great grandfather of this program, because he was the first to talk, to talk about space exploration, the idea that we cannot stay on Earth, we have to get off and kind of spread what he called intelligence in the the universe, consciousness. He talked about these ideas. It's interesting that it has this this imperial and colonization idea within it as well, right? There's, and I'm wondering, is that one of the things that kind of attracts, say, people on the right in Russia to these ideas? There is a certain nationalist element to that. It's interesting that Fedorov's real name was Gagarin. Uh, because he was an illegitimate, uh, uh, illegitimate son of Prince Gagarin, and uh, the contemporary Fedorovians make a lot of the fact they call them the two Gagarins. So they they think it's not a coincidence, obviously, that it's it's a kind of almost a providential fact, a providential, you know, providential. Uh, like phenomena, a kind of Russian manifest destiny in space, right? That Fedorov, uh, there's a meme on the internet that I like to show when I do presentation on this topic, which says that Fedorov kind of envisioned uh, envisioned the space travel. Tsiolkovsky calculated the formula for the rocket. Karalov, you know, the chief constructor, uh, built the rockets and Gagarin actually went to space. So they see this kind of interesting loop and they work, the contemporary Fedorovians actively worked with the Museum of Cosmonautics uh, to uh, establish and legitima- legi- uh, legitimize this uh, kind of nationalist genealogy. And it's been established, as I was working on this topic, I'd say within the last five to six years. 
So talk a bit more about this movement. I mean, you you kind of hung out with them, you talked to them. What are some of the features of it today? Yeah. Yeah, so they're very different movements, right? Because first I worked with transhumanists who are not who are who are not who are different from Fedorovians, right? So Fedorovians are not transhumanists, but they are immortalists, right? So they both believe in sort of science scientific and technological immortality, but they have, uh, and they all know each other, they have very lively debates that I describe in my book in great details because they don't agree about uh, many things. But but first I wanted to say specifically about Russian cosmism because sometimes uh, it's, uh, it's misunderstood, like what it is and when it was created. So I want to say just a few words, if I may, about historical, uh, about how it came about historically, right? So, uh, Russian cosmos can be said it's a school of thought that was created uh, retrospectively in the 70s by the Soviet scholars to, to designate what they saw as a distinct, specifically Russian philosophical tradition. What they did is that they uh, took some they took some scholars and some interesting and unorthodox thinkers, some religious philosophers, some scientists who wrote philosophy on the side, and they they put them together in a kind of philosophical school, right, and called it Russian cosmism. But um, Russian cosmism is not so much cosmic as it's about. It's not really so much about the cosmos, although it's definitely part part of it. But it's about it's the main idea is evolutionary. Right, that's evolution is really key terms there. So what unites these different thinkers, right, and thinkers that they put together to constitute the school were as diverse as Vladimir Vernadsky, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Alexander Chizhevsky, the so-called scientific cosmism. And then they put thinkers like Pavel Florensky or Vladimir Solovyov, the so-called religious con- uh, cosmism. But what they claim unites them is the belief in a certain meaningful, purposeful, and teleological evolution, right, with a central role given to human as its drivers. And again, what happens, they put Fedorov, again, retrospectively or retroactively as an as a founder of the school. But of course, Fedorov did not found any Russian cosmic school, right? Um, so uh, Fedorov also had a direct uh, circle of followers, right, who was the real first Fedorovians. And the Fedorovians that I work with today, who are clustered around um, uh, around what is called Fedorov Museum Library in Moscow, uh, they see themselves as direct followers of these first Fedorovians. And they are Russian Orthodox Christians who call themselves active Christians. They call, they call, uh, they say that they represent what they call active Christianity because everybody else they believe are passive Christians because they're just waiting for resurrection, but they're actually doing something about it. So that's the sort of contemporary Russian cosmism, I called it Fedorovianism. Talk about this. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, another aspect, as you said, you you discussed or you, you, you researched was cryonics. And, and this is one of the things that brought you got you interested. And you said that there's one one company in Russia, in Eurasia, I guess, called CryoRus. So t- talk about this company and and how they, the, you know, describe the process of freezing bodies and, and what is what is it all about? Um, so, so the, 
so Kryorus uh, um, is a Russian cryonics company, the only one uh, that exists in Russia so far. And it's based, just like American cryonics, on the idea that cold stops or suspends time, which is, which is you know, they believe that it already exists because we can freeze embryos, we can freeze uh, cells, we can't yet freeze organs. But they take it a lot further because what they claim is that if a, a recently diseased person is preserved in liquid nitrogen, it is maybe possible um, that for future science to find a way to bring them back to life. But just to clarify, cryonics is not in just, they use these containers called doors. They're like these giant insulated flasks where, uh, where they store uh, frozen bodies. Um, of course, they don't call them bodies. And that's interesting because they call these people patients because cryonics patients, right? Because they don't consider them dead. Um, they consider them basically alive. So that's, this is um, a kind of socially contingent idea that is believed by this collective. But cryonics, they don't just throw people in there once they're dead. It is a long, sometimes multi-day procedure where the body is first gradually cooled until it's minus 196 Celsius. Soon, um, the temperature and then the process of perfusion um, takes place. So the blood is replaced with the so-called cryoprotectant, basically a kind of human an antifreeze, which is still being perfected because the biggest problem with cryonics is that it, it can cause damage to tissues and organs. Um, and cryorus, uh, cryorus, as it sounds in Russian, is one of the uh, three active cryonics companies um, in the world, two of them in the U.S., one in Michigan and one in Arizona. And they, uh, as they like to proudly say, they're the first cryonics company in Eurasia. And just as the other companies, they offer two types of contracts for cryopreservations of bodies. It is possible to preserve the whole body or to preserve only the head or the brain. And then it's got different price tag. And um, it's cheaper to preserve just the brain. In fact, most people go for that option. Also, it is more ideologically correct because the idea that cryonicists and a lot of transhumanists adhere to is that personality is contained in the brain. So it's just enough to preserve the brain for future restoration that the body, not everybody believes that, but it is quite a widespread belief. It also enables for, for some people to have a traditional funeral. So you could uh, remove the brain for cryopreservation and still have a funeral if you want, even a religious funeral, a Russian Orthodox funeral, and nobody would know that the brain, that the body goes to the cemetery and the brain has been removed for cryopreservation. Do you, do you know how many people have that they've done this process to? Yeah, they now have 70-something bodies, I believe. Not bodies, but patients. So some are brains, some are bodies. When I started, it was only 30, and it's only been a few years. So, And they, have, they also have pets. They have a few cats and dogs, and even one chinchilla, and I think some parrots. So they uh, they preserve pets. It's kind of a separate division of Kriurus. And, and do you know anything about the people who sign up for this process? It's usually transhumanists and a lot of uh, the people who were first frozen were relatives of the company's activists, of so people who created Kriurus. Like one of the founders had his grandmother cryopreserved. Uh, 
another 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 founder has her mom cryopreserved. So a lot of a lot a lot a lot of people so far are relatives. Other people are transhumanists or people who believe in technological um, immortality and a kind of resurrection or restoration. So it's people who take this leap of faith that future science has possible could possibly find a way to bring these people back to life. And of course, as they like to say, uh, I mean, we can't promise anything, but it is better than the alternative. They like to say the alternative being buried or cremated. They say, why not try this? Now, of course, another another thing that's connected to to this is is the efforts to uh, prevent aging. Um, and it's interesting because I, I found it really striking that they they referred the people who are in the anti aging part refer to aging as a disease that needs to be cured, and you know it's this the anti aging part is really fascinating because it connects to it much much closer to the general moment we're in in consumer capitalism where everyone is trying to maintain youth, right? There's all sorts of beauty products, there's all sorts of surgical procedures to and 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 all sorts of efforts to extend life. Um, how does how do you understand the the anti aging? What is it in Russia, and how do you understand it? In how is it connected to all of these other things in our kind of contemporary life? Yeah, I think there's an interesting um, relationship between the effort to cure aging and the cult of use that you mentioned in consumer capitalism. But first of all, I, I want to say that these are two quite different endeavors, right? One is anti-aging and another one that is essentially anti-death, right? Even if scientists talk about radical life extensions, they don't want to, you know, talk about necessarily immortality, right? They're just saying we want to extend life. And I think one endeavor feeds into the other, but I don't think there is a causal connection. So I don't think that the sort of the consumer cult of being forever young necessarily uh, necessarily caught necessarily uh, produced uh, the sort of the anti-agent level because the effort to cure agent on the genetic level is much more radical than anti-agent procedures right like botox or cosmetic surgery but that said, immortalism as an ideology is quite opportunistic and proselytizing, right? Immortalists actually spend a lot of time trying to convert people and explain to themselves, first of all, why not everybody is an immortalist? In fact, they ask this question. Most people do everything to look young, but these the same people usually do not want to live forever. So I've seen immortalists use the rhetoric and imagery of anti-aging, such as talking about it, and especially I've noticed uh, most recently, there's a whole genre of posts and pictures of social media of aging bodies, almost like a modern tradition of memento mori, right? A symbolic reminder of the inevitability of aging and death. And the message there, so they post these pictures of aging bodies or stories of horrible, you know, diseases related to aging. But the message here is if you don't join us, this is going to be you (laughs) sooner or later. But in the same vein, uh, they utilize the discourse of neoliberal capitalism by, for example, saying that, well, if we extend life, we can be all productive working citizens for much longer and therefore will ease the burden on social security. So that's definitely like the discourse that is present. But in general, 
immortalists, both scientists in the field and their what I call lay cheerleaders, are skeptical and even some dismissive of anti-agent field as literally uh, being superficial or surface based because they're saying they change in appearance but not the substance of the process of agent because they want to, as they say, to crack the agent code on the genetic level. Right, so they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily interested in anti-agent procedures and sometimes they like to expose them as a fraud and that's kind of like derailing their cause. You know, I was really struck that you you said in in your last answer about efforts to convert people. So I want to actually have you talk more about the types of people you encountered and what, do they have a conversion story themselves and and do they see themselves as ha- it or I should say this idea of the common cause does it have a proselytization component to it like like a religion? Oh, it, def- it definitely it definitely does. And the religion question is separate and very interesting. Maybe we, I could also talk about this later. But it de- you know because transhumanism is always compared to religion. But I think it's more complicated than this. But in terms of proselytizing, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, both the Fedorovians and transhumanists engage in sort of spreading their message. And they are always, uh, like I said, they're, they're really sh- shocked and surprised uh, why not everybody is with them. They viewed themselves as a kind of embattled communities that are trying to work for the good of the people, but nobody listens to them. So what they do is they constantly try to spread their message. They... Um, uh, in, engage, for example, recently there has been, you know, there's transhumanism on the one hand that's very popular right now in the US and in Russia, but then there's also, which I call, which is kind of like a general trend of death denial, you could call it sociologically, but there's also an opposite movement that's been going on for the last couple of decades called death acceptance movements. There are places like death cafes, I don't know if you've heard of these, these are spaces that started in the US but also came to Russia, uh, where you can come and talk about death and die and get support and sort of but it's a so-called death positive movement right and it linked into the new developments such as green funerals uh, right sort of ecologically friendly funerals the idea that uh, home funerals right that we have to kind of like take death from the hospitals and sort of these heroic life extended technologies that are mainstream with life support and kind of like die as we used to as we used to before. So what transhumanists do in in Russia, and this has sort of happened already after I finished my book, I saw that they would go to these desk cafes with a bunch of books, science books and popular science books on life extension. And they would distribute these books in desk cafes. And one woman uh, wrote that they were actually very successful. These books were gone, she said, in a few minutes. So they, it's almost like spreading the message, like we have good news for you. You know, you might not die. So this, Right. So in that sense, it's very similar to, you know, it's very similar to religious, uh, uh, to, to re- religious conversion. They all have conversion stories themselves. Right. And that's I've I've quoted some of them, some of them in my book. But what happened, you know, is that they were religious or spiritual and they realized that this is the end. So they kind of came to grasp with the secular finitude. And now they want some, to do something about it and explain to everybody else. So in some sense, in that sense, uh, secular transhumanists, which is most of them, are very hostile to uh, to religions. They see it as competition in some sense. And they're saying that uh, we are better. 
uh, come to us. And there also was a really interesting debate. And again, this is after I already finished the book. I still follow them on Facebook. They're very active. There was a re recent, they also don't like New Age, which also has these sort of like anti-agent techniques that, that have to do with like practicing yoga or doing, uh, you know, some supplements that they consider questionable. And there was a big Congress, I think, I'm forgetting, we're in Sochi or somewhere, and there was a big debate. Do we go there? Like, can we really preach to the pagans? Or do, you, you know, or because one woman said, I'm definitely going. I'm just giving a lecture on life extension because I think that's my mission. And others said, no, by going there, you kind of drag us into the mud with these people. We want to have to do, we want to like do, we, we want to have nothing to do with them. And they're saying, well, you know, if we didn't, if like first Christians didn't preach to the pagan, you wouldn't have, uh, Christianity would not have this global success. So we really, we really have to try. You know, I, I, I have to, while you're talking and you can hear, I'm kind of like chuckling at certain points because a lot of it sounds so kind of strange and absurd. So how how do you go about a project like this where you have to treat, you know, you have to deal with these these ideas seriously, right? And you have to deal with people's beliefs and actions and identities seriously. Was that somewhat of a of a challenge, or did your anthropological anthropological training already, uh, you know? solve that for you and and how did they how did they regard you as as someone who's coming to study them so anthropological training was definitely um, key to that so we are trained um, to suspend disbelief and that's exactly what I did with my first project and that's what I did here they of course and I've already experienced efforts of conversions with the Buddhist project of course everybody tried to convert me and they were quite disappointed that I was perhaps not a Buddhist um, and but once they find a place for you in like in the first project for example they found a place for me because they couldn't understand why I was interested in this why I would I show up and follow them so they found sort of a place for me in their own cosmology they said okay I will see that like you were a reincarnation of this Mongol Lama so that's why you're here okay so this is okay so, like you're okay like you could do this so something similar happened uh, with transhumanists they uh, they did try to convert me they worked with me in fact one of them said you, look, if we can't convert you, who's already sympathetic to us, and I was sympathetic to them, uh, you know, as an anthropologist, like I said, like you suspend disbelief and you really try to, I try to immerse myself in these communities and take the ideas very, very seriously. So, but they were frustrated because they said, like, if we can't convert you, a sympathetic anthropologist, like our PR, something is wrong with our PR. We really have to work on the PR. <laughs> so, yeah, so they trained right. on me right. as I studied them. <laughs> 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 right, right. That's that's interesting. Now, now another aspect of, of of this movement that you talk about is, of course, you know, transferring the mind, going beyond the body, especially interfacing with you know computers and computer technology. Um, how are these being imagined and researched in in, in Russia? What is, what is this all about? Yeah, so this idea of so-called mind uploading, as they um, call it in English, it has to do, which also is a popular idea here, but it has to do with a particular idea of the, of the human, which posits that human personality is contained, as I mentioned uh, before, with the cryonics, so it's contained exact, entirely in the brain, and therefore can be separated from the physical container and transferred into what these techno-futurists call a non-biological platform, for example, cyberspace. That might sound like 
science fiction, but there are actually already dozens of startups aspiring to do just that, to create these digital avatars that will survive us after death and that will be in some sort, uh, in some sense, us. And although it's very easy to critique it anthropologically or philosophically, because it's a kind of, as a kind of old, you know, old version of mind-body dualism, it's interesting that it's not that different from the dominant uh, neuroscientific concept of personhood today. They call it personhood as brainhood, philosophers who study sort of more mainstream neuroscience. So I didn't find these ideas uh, so far-fetched, right? Person, the idea is that personhood is is essentially brainhood. So that's that's the idea behind mind upload and that you can separate uh, the mind uh, from the biological brain and and transfer it into, into some kind of non-biological, what they call platform. So what they believe, uh, people in Russia who I worked with, so what, what they, in real, in sort of what they um, hope for in real life, they rely on what already exists, these things called brain-computer brain interfaces, or BCIs, as they are abbreviated. They're also called neurointerfaces. And these things have brain-computer interfaces connect the brain through implants to a computer. And so far, they have been deployed experimentally in the medical field, such as for paraplegics or people with the so-called locked-in syndrome who cannot move their limbs, but they have been able to move a robotic arm via these brain implants. But in Russia, I came across, on the one hand, a proposition that these BCIs or neurointerfaces can become a national idea, a new market where Russia needs to get in before it becomes too mainstream. So it's been likened um, in disc discursively, it's been likened to the Soviet space program. The suggestion has been that neural interfaces could replicate the success of the space program. And let's get in. Let's get in this market before it's too late. So on the other hand, uh, I was intrigued by its kind of uh, spiritual philosophical implications by some of my interlocutors who proposed to use BCIs to develop a form of collective consciousness. And the goal here is not so much technological as specifically evolutionary, right? Because they sort of dream of using BCIs to develop a certain kind of collective consciousness which will allow us to evolve somehow to the next level, right, to achieve some sort of unity. So although these folks were neither cosmists nor immortalists, I found these ideas very close to Russian cosmism, right? They don't, they're not cosmists or immortalists in the sense they don't focus on death, but they focus on issues like climate change, possible environmental catastrophe, and the idea is that we'll either evolve or disappear, and BCIs, you know, these neurointerfaces, these speculative neurointerfaces, become a kind of salvationist technology, just like other scientific fields, you know, where transhumanists place their hopes, be it genetic engineering or regenerative medicine or gene editing, become not just technologists, but specifically salvationist technologists. Right. Yeah, that's what I was just, I was thinking in the sense that, you know, in an age such as ours where, you know, climate catastrophe, uh, pandemic, as we're seeing now, uh, you know, it causes a lot of anxiety a lot of hysteria we see in terms of like, uh, there's a lot of cultural products around the idea of extinction. Um, and, and this technology sounds like a way, as you just said, like a salvationist idea, like, okay, so how do we survive the great catastrophe? D do you connect the, you know, the, 
the emergence of this is not just about the possibility of the available technology now and the development of it, but it also seems to have this underlying cultural component. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea that immortalism and various kind of apocalyptic anxieties often go hand in hand. Uh, but and in and this is very interesting to me um, that, that these have often parallel processes. And this is not just now. Um, in the 19th century, for example, going back to Fedorov, um, um, so in Fedorov, like many of his contemporaries in Europe, was very preoccupied with the so in the 19th century with the so-called idea of the heat death of the universe, right? The idea that second law of thermodynamics that posited that the universe will eventually cool down and come to an end. So this was a huge anxiety both in Russia, but also globally with European intellectuals, right? Dostoevsky had his characters speak to the idea that this is there's nothing more depressing that Earth will become this icy rock, spinning among other icy rocks, right? Even Darwin wrote in his diary that the heat death of the universe was the most depressing idea he's ever heard of because it will put an end to this long process of evolution and that would just, it would be very depressing. It would if it would just end up like that. So I call, I call these sort of periods kind of like where we see the bursts of immortalism and the burst of ap apocalypticism. So right now I see another kind of burst of immortalism, both in Russia and the US, and we have other versions of um, emerging or growing apocalypticism, right? Most prominent today is, of course, climate change and anxiety about the death of the planet and of life itself. So in that sense, I think these uh, processes um, go hand in hand, right? That they are, that the desire for immortality have to do with these larger existential concerns that have to do with more radical sense and awareness of this ultimate finitude. You know, the other aspect of uh, going back to Fyodorov that I was just thinking about is that, you know, his ideas, de he's developing these ideas in, in, in the late 19th century. And this is also precisely the time where you, you have a movement. I know this in the United States after the American Civil War, you have a movement of spiritualism, right? This idea that you can commune with the dead, you can talk to the dead. Uh, there is a growth in, in people having seances and meeting and having these little groups to, to somehow go beyond the earthly plane and, and speak to their dead relatives. Um, it, do you see this as, as these ideas that are being emerging in a variety of different places in the world? Are these connected to also with a, a hope, a technological hope? That's coming out of the, the Industrial Revolution, but also an anxiety about technology? Um, I, th I think Fedorov was um, slightly different from spiritu spiritualists, although spiritualists was of were, of course, very popular both in Russia and in the U.S., and they have used technology in that way. I think even Thomas Edison tried to use radio to, uh, to, to, to communicate with the dead, and others have tried to deploy technology, and there were scientists making pacts saying, okay, if you die first, just give me a sign. Of course, right, this is, give me a sign that something does exist, but this was, that, that idea was always around, right, that, that that we don't know <laughs> what's beyond, right? So I'm not sorry. I lost the thread of your question at this point. But, no, I, I guess I'm guess I'm trying to understand, like trying to put him in a put his ideas in a in a wider context of what's in the air of at the time, right? And and there seems to be. I mean, they're not 
his ideas aren't necessarily similar to spiritualism, but it's just interesting to me that they're paralleled to one another, this idea of either resurrecting the dead or that there is life beyond death. I guess this is where I, I don't know if you can say anything to that. If not, that's okay too. <laughs> right, right. But I think I, I think spir- spiritualists had uh, have a sort of more conventional idea that there is life um, after death. They were just maybe the similarity here is that they were more active. That they also exhibited some kind of agency in trying to be proactive to uh, try it now. Right to try to uh, to try to figure out now to sort of perhaps uh, increase their own conviction that uh, that it's possible, and they have also maybe another similarity that they have also deployed technology in the in the in the late nineteenth century. Right, there was a spiritualist photography, so they used technology as a proof uh, in their in some in some sense to their beliefs. Right, that they have been able to. There were these sciences, there, but they were also able to capture. You know, in the spiritualist photography, they were able to capture these what they saw it was spirits. On photographs, the idea is that technology can reveal something that's unseen. I think that's key to the spiritualist ideas. Fedorov, I think, was very different. He was even hostile to um, anything spiritual. Spiritualist. He never really even talks about sort of the ideas of the soul or you. You, you know, he has been critiqued actually by his contemporaries who were genuinely like him, but said he was too materialistic almost. You know, um, they said he, like, Berdyaev wrote, well, Fyodorov is great. He's, like, this embodiment of the Russian soul. He's, like, this eschatologist, which is, like, very typical, you know, for a lot of Russian thinkers. But he I misunderstood the mystical idea of death, they said, because you do have to die to to uh, to be resurrected and he tried to not do that so people have and also they say why does he always talk about the body but not about the soul so in that sense uh, and he and he and he really does um but in that sense he's different from spiritualists he also really disliked buddhism uh, it was like he's uh, you know it was which was interesting to me because i studied buddhism for so many years before that's this idea of extinction he was very hostile to that now, the, Russia's 20th century is, is one of, of mass death and destruction. And, um, and I, I, this, this historical experience and the, and the traumas that result from it, the social traumas that result to it, um, how, does, how does this figure into this wider movement of trying to beat death? Is there any connection to the fact that, you know, you have such experience of death so it kind of spawns or inspires a, an effort to, you know, move past it or or to beat it. I think it uh, to me it has to do with the general threat of destruction. I think the experience of trauma to me is connected to the same fear of extinction, right? Uh, that these social traumas to me. The social traumas were important for sure, and the ideas of of death, of being everywhere and experience of death. But they were perhaps, I, to, to me, they're sort of in the same vein, and but that these large existential concerns with the ends, right, that have to do with finitude. I think social traumas to me is the same sort of social traumas and mass death and mass destruction of the 20th centuries have have to do with 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 the same apocalyptic sensibility that that I've spoken earlier. And finally, um 
what one of the things that strikes me in, in, in reading your book and listening to you talk about it is, you know, we're in an age, especially since after 1991, the collapse of communism, we're in an age that utopia uh, is only starting to kind of make a comeback, right? There's a there there seems to have been, especially with the the, the potential threat of climate catastrophe, there seems to be an a limit on humanity. So why think of a future? But nonetheless, this immortalism, I think, speaks to a, a potential one of the potential revivals of utopian thinking. Um, do you? And, and and what you know? What is the story of of humanity? Like, where do we go from here? Right? If we go think about the ideology of like the end of history, it's kind of like, well, well, what's next? Right? How do we evolve? And that's another discourse that's clearly in your work. Is this is this connected immortalism and the other aspects that you deal with? Is this part of a new utopian thinking of what's the next stage of human development? Yes, I, it's, it's, yes, it, because they see, transhumanists see themselves as ultimately concerned with human evolution, except they don't want, and in that sense, they're close to Fedorovians, they don't want to leave it to nature. They, uh, they want to kind of take, as they say, take evolution in their own hands and advance to the next stage. So in that sense, it's a kind of techno-optimism that we have um, emerging, both in the U.S., and in Russia, the idea that things are improving. So you see the beginnings of utopian thinking here, but at the same time, I, I think these are, only, this, these are only the beginnings. For example, it's very hard to, uh, to connect this sort of, uh, this sort of you know, biological utopian is the idea that uh, we will radically transform the humans and there's no agreement to what's next. You know, some want to become a beam of light and travel in the universe. Some just want to last forever. But there is uh, no clear-cut political movements. And I think this is something to watch out for because, the, for example, like the biocosmos, these anarchists, uh, you know, leftist anarchists who wanted to use immortality to advance some kind of uh, leftist almost proto-transhumanism. So I don't see these political movements emerging just yet, but it's possibly it's possibly that it's coming because when I was working in Russia, the most difficult part was to get a coherent idea from transhumanists. What is their image of the future? Because they were so focused on survival because they, f they feel like what they need to do is just to survive and then we'll figure this out later. Uh, so there were no uh, clear political critiques or, or in engagements, which I think is changing now. I see more people involved in various kinds of political activism, perhaps some movements will, you know, there's in the US, there's some idea, there's some, because a lot of transhumanists are ultimately libertarian, libertarians, right? They just said, we want to develop these technologies, just let us do it, like governments, like, you know, the um, FDA slow us down, so just like leave, leave us alone. But there is some other movements that are trying to develop some kind of leftist transhumanism or because the left has been traditionally very suspicious of technology, right? That's why there is there's so many left critiques of the Silicon Valley. Uh, so they're trying to kind of um, disentangle, uh, dis disentangle these like negative association of technology bringing ultimate destruction and use it towards some kind of techno-utopian movements. But like I said, these are very inchoate 
ideas and movements that might or might not emerge. That was Anya Bernstein, the John L. Loeb Associate Professor of Social Sciences and Anthropology at Harvard University. She's the author of two books, Religious Bodies Politic, Rituals of Sovereignty in Buryat Buddhism, published by the University of Chicago Press, and most recently, The Future of Immortality, Remaking Life and Death in Contemporary Russia, published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued and much appreciated patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.